This is They Create Worlds, episode 145, Revisions and Updates, part 3. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Jeffrey, after three long, grueling episodes, the Avatar has finally ascended. But did you know that the Avatar is not the only one ascending right now? No. Uh, Who else is ascending? Well, turns out I'm ascending too, because I am moving to a new city and a new life. Great. Now I'm going to be all alone here and doomed (laughs) forever and ever. Yeah, but you can come visit and get fancy Coke, because I am moving to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, then. As long as I get copious amounts of Diet Coke, you can send me Diet Coke as penance for your abandonment. (laughs) I only bring this up, not because I'm inviting everyone to stalk us in our personal lives, but because it means that there is going to be a little chaos around the They Create Worlds podcast for a couple of months as all of this gets settled. Close listeners may recall from way back that we talked about how we were going to still try to do our annual live stream but it was probably going to be much later because life things were happening. This is the life thing. Obviously, Jeff did really know before this episode. Now we're making it public. Yes, but now we are making it public. What that means is the next three episodes are still going to be real episodes. We're still putting out a quality product, but rather than do some of our deep dives like our trilogy on trilogies that we just did, we're going to kind of take this moment to delve into some errata, some things about the book that I wrote, some things that I've learned since. I think we're going to do a reading for one episode. Then we're going to go around and do an episode where we talk about other people that are doing great work, because as awesome as we are, there are other awesome people too. Just so you know, the next three episodes may be a little different, but we will get back to our normal deep dives into games companies cultural context of video games, etc. after that point, and hopefully still do our annual live stream marathon sometime before the end of the year. Pencil that in for maybe sometime in November. Exactly. All right, so to start off with, this is the start of our sixth year. Six years ago today, we launched They Create Worlds. All I can do is ask why. That's right. Version 2. Yes. Because there was a version 1. It didn't necessarily go well. But because we are crazy masochists, we made it available for you to listen to anyway. That is, if you are a patron. If you're not, you don't get to hear it. That's right. We only parade ourselves for embarrassment for paying customers. That's right. We've now established what we are. Now all that's left is to negotiate the price. Which can be as little as $1. We don't require anyone to have a minimum donation to support us. And of course, the podcast itself will always be free, no matter what. Even if we end up recording it from a cardboard box in the gutter because we are homeless, we will still not charge you, the listener, for the podcast. But if you want certain fun extras like that embarrassing first episode, etc., feel free to support us on that Patreon Every little bit helps. Primarily goes to hosting costs, domain costs. Equipment. 
equipment. We do occasionally dip in to buy new fancy equipment, etc., etc. If we ever get really, really wealthy in Patreon, we may even use it to do things like fund fancy research trips and other things like that to bring you even more elaborate deep dives into video game history. But either way, podcast is always out there. Podcast is always free. If you like us, feel free to support us. That leads us with where we are now. We've been doing this for six years. Obviously, mistakes were made. Sometimes in audio editing. Sometimes in things being said. Sometimes in things that have been typed. Who knows? There were lots of mistakes made. And Alex has kept track of every (laughs) single one of them. I've kept track of a few. Absolutely. And sometimes it's not so much mistakes being made as new sources of information being mined information appeared to be correct at the time, then it was all a lie. In honor of our sixth anniversary here, we just wanted to go back and revisit some of these stories, mostly from the book, and correct the record on some of that. Hopefully someday I'll be able to do a second edition of the book. That would be my fervent hope so that I can retype up some of this stuff. But if not, at least I can release Errata online or do podcasts like this one where I talk about all my failures for your entertainment. Go get your popcorn out, kids, and a drink. Really, there are a few specific things that I wanted to focus on for this episode, a few specific stories that we want to get into in a little bit of depth. The first of these has to do with a little company by the name of Fun Games. Now, I honestly don't remember how much we've talked about Fun Games on the podcast itself. I don't think it's come up at all, or if it has, it has only come up tangentially, sort of like so-and-so acquired Fun Games, or so-and-so interacted with Fun Games. The name doesn't sound familiar to me. We probably talked about it in one of our Atari episodes because Fun Games is ultimately, in a complicated way, a spinoff of Atari. We probably got into that in our History of Atari episodes, but we haven't done an episode on Fun Games. There isn't enough info, really, I don't think, to do a convincing episode on just Fun Games. So what that means is, in this episode, where we're going to do deep dives on a few different subjects, we can take a third of the episode or something to do a History of Fun Games. I do have fun games in the book, but it turns out that our good friend, Ethan Johnson, the oft-invoked friend of the show, has mined some new sources on this since the book was published, and we can do some interesting stuff with that. So first, I'll just sketch fun games as we used to understand it, kind of the basics of the company and who they were and what happened. And then we'll see how that story has actually ended up being distorted and is a little bit wrong. Fun Games Incorporated was a producer of coin-operated games that appeared in about May 1975. It was founded by an individual named Oberto Alvarez, who was apparently quite a character. We don't know a huge amount about him. We do know that he was Cuban. We do know that he was forced to flee Cuba in 1962 due to the coming to power of Fidel Castro. He was apparently working in opposition to Fidel Castro. 
There are stories that he has perhaps had mafia ties, which would make sense. This is something I can't confirm independently, so I'm not saying it's true, but it makes logical sense because the mafia was actually very involved in Cuba before Castro came to power. The Batista government was in very, very closely with the mafia. If you've ever seen The Godfather Part Two, that includes a kind of fictionalized version of the Cuban mafia connection with some of the action taking place there. Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone, goes there. They're making a casino deal right as the revolution is happening, right before the regime is overthrown. And while the characters in the Godfather movies are fictional, it's not a true story, it is fictionalizing something that was actually going on. There was heavy, heavy mafia involvement in Cuba. So if Alvarez was in opposition to Castro and was a supporter of the Batista regime, it's nowhere outside the realm of possibility that he had mafia ties during his time in Cuba as well. Alvarez is forced to flee in 1962. He ends up taking a job as a janitor because he's a refugee. He's got, as far as I know, education and business capability and whatnot. But when you're a refugee, you often start by just taking whatever job you can get. So he ends up working as a janitor at the Corobilt Container Company in the Oakland area, in Alameda County. Cora builds shipping containers, wooden shipping containers. I think they probably build containers out of other products as well, but wood is one of them. Because I think of their location in the Bay Area, where this kind of growing video game industry is developing, obviously Chicago had been the center, but there's a secondary center now in California because of Atari and some of the other companies that spun out and copied them, etc., so Corbelt actually built shipping containers for coin-op manufacturers to ship their cabinets. They were a supplier to the coin-op industry amongst many other industries. Because Alvarez really did have skills above and beyond janitorial skills, he did rise from janitor to VP of wood products. I don't know the story of how this happened. You know, Alvarez is a kind of obscure character, but we do know kind of the basic outline of his story. As VP of Wood Products, he was heavily involved in, you know, this building shipping stuff for arcade games, etc. He knew what was going on in the video game industry. We know that he decided to do fun games because he saw coin-op as a recession-proof industry. The mid-70s were a pretty weird time for the U.S. economy. You had the oil embargo from the Arab countries that was driving gasoline prices through the roof. You had massive inflation going on. The economy was just kind of in bad shape. You had recessions a couple of times. It was not a great time for the U.S. economy. And so a lot of entrepreneurs were looking for businesses that were recession-proof because everyone feared recession in this period very strongly. They were also looking for investment in tangible products because inflation was running so rampant that if you just had money sitting in the bank, it was liable to lose its value faster than you liked, and so it was better to be invested in something tangible that you could work with. There's a lot of coin-op industry stuff that became interrelated with that. A lot of the cocktail table market that we talked about in our Pong episode was driven by people with money like doctors and lawyers 
investing in coin-operated games as a way to have something physical to invest in when inflation was eating things up. And it also caused some manufacturing companies to examine the coin-op industry. Alvarez was one of these guys, and so he founded this company, Fun Games. According to research from Ethan Johnson, he may have been holding on to the name for a while because there's records in the Secretary of State's office of a Fun Games going back to the 1960s that seems to be the same company. I mean, obviously, it's such a generic name. It could be a different company, but it looks like it's probably the same company. At that time, it was probably just a name, a shell corporation. It wasn't actually doing anything until 1975. That stuff that we knew was true at the time I wrote the book, and that's stuff that we still think is true now. The controversial part of fun games is that they brought in a lot of ex-Atari staff, and it looks like they actually stole Atari property. Stole actual property. Yes, circuit boards, ROMs, schematics of Atari games. The games they released were all riffs on Atari games. They did a tank clone called Tankers. They did a clone of Jet Fighter called Biplane. Both tank and jet fighter are one-on-one dueling games where each player controls a tank or a plane, and they're maneuvering around and trying to shoot the other guy. person who shoots the other guy most during the time of play wins. Of course, tank was adapted into combat on the VCS as well. So they're the only people, as far as I know, that did a straight-up clone of Tank. Now, there were other companies that did Tank games similar to Tank. They did a straight-up clone, and that's because they had parts and schematics. They could do that. They did biplane, like I said. They did a ball-and-paddle compilation that included several Atari ball-and-paddle products, including a very early version of what became Breakout. It was a little different, but it was kind of an early version of it. Yeah, they just ripped off Atari stuff. And the person that we all thought was at the center of this was an engineer at Atari named Larry Leppert. Leppert, unfortunately, decided pretty much not to talk about any of his experiences in the coin-op business. Ethan had a pretty good line on him at one point, but it just seems like he doesn't want to talk as far as we can tell. So we don't know a lot about Leppert, but Leppert was one of the very prominent engineers in the early days of Atari, the very early days. He kind of took over the management of engineering for a while from Al Alcorn. We don't know exactly all the games he was involved in, but he was involved in some of the early Atari games. We knew he left the company and went to a carnival company named Marquin first, and then went from Marquin to Fun Games. We always thought he was the guy that stole stuff and was primarily responsible for setting up this new company along with a couple of Atari salespeople, Pat Carnes and Satish Batani, who were just kind of fed up with the situation at Atari in 1974. As we discussed in our Atari episodes, John Wakefield brought in the new management team. The company was not doing well, and Grand Track 10 was a disaster, and they were losing money, might go bankrupt. Corporate politics were getting weird because you had these new corporate people in in positions. Pat Carnes, who was head of sales, and Satish Bhutani, who was involved in international sales, were kind of disillusioned. Some of the engineers, like Larry Leppert, ended up being kind of disillusioned. We thought that they all got together. Leppert stole some parts, and then they went off first to this Mark Quinn and then to Fun Games to 
go into competition with all of this ripoff stuff. Turns out the story is a little more complicated than that. So that's why this is going to be the first topic that we go into some errata on. We're going to kind of do three big topics as part of this episode. Fun games will be number one. Our new information comes primarily from an Atari tech by the name of Holly Leroy, or Leroy. I'm not sure where he puts the emphasis on the syllable in his last name. Leroy was interviewed by Ethan recently and provided some great information. Now, as with anything else, his recollections could be a little off because it's been years and who knows, and it's just one person's view, but it feels plausible what he says, and we definitely want to get this in the record and have this kind of greater understanding of what was going on. It all starts with this company called Marquin that I mentioned previously. Marquin was a carnival supplier. They supplied equipment of various types to traveling carnivals, fairs, etc., that would move around the country. Atari in this period of time, 1974, we've talked about before, was in a period of trying to expand into anything and everything they possibly could, which, of course, is a big part of the reason why they ended up having financial problems in this time period, is that they were kind of focusing on too many things at once and not really getting much done. One thing that they found intriguing was trying to get video games into carnivals more because Nolan Bushnell had worked at an amusement park, as we know, Lagoon Amusement Park in Utah. Coin-operated games have long been part of that amusement park experience. Even going back further than the 60s, when you look at the rise of crane games of the early digger machines in the 1920s and early 1930s, those were products that were big in traveling carnivals and fairs. Go back even further in that, the 19th century and early coin-op amusements would be part of traveling fairs in particularly the United Kingdom, which was one of the origin points for coin-operated amusements generally. So there's a long history of coin-op and carnivals, but I imagine that video games provided a little more of a challenge for the carnival trade than something like a digger machine, because these are more complex machines that need power, which, for instance, early digger machines didn't need. They need service. They're kind of annoying to move around. They're probably kind of annoying to set up, tear down, etc. Even though there's a long history between coin-op and carnivals, video games may not be a great fit. So somebody, and I don't know if it was somebody at Atari or someone at Mark Wynn, but somebody came up with the idea of doing a trailer, a carnival trailer, that would contain video games. So it would be something that you didn't really have to do a lot of special setup and teardown for. It would be a special carnival trailer designed specifically to house video games to take around with the carnival. They got involved in this deal, and Larry Leppert may have been involved with it at some point. Holly Leroy definitely was involved in it. They were doing some work together. Mark Quinn was working on the cabinets, presumably that would house the games within these trailers. There were some issues with the cabinets. Their dimensions were all wrong. So Holly Leroy is sent down to work with Mark Quinn to try to sort this stuff out. The owner, Don Quincy, 
The company's actually named for the husband and wife team of Don and Marilyn Quincy, hence Mar Quinn. They ended up offering him a bump in pay and a car and to pay his moving expenses to come work for them instead of for Atari. It turned out that what was happening is these were carnies, I mean, real carnies going way back. And whether the reputation is justified or not, carnies often have the reputation as being a bit shady. In this case, it appears that Mark Quinn's interest in working with Atari was just to get their hands on some Atari stuff, learn a bit about Atari products, and then... Funneling that information to them? Kind of making this stuff themselves and getting into the manufacturing business. So he's almost like a mole. Well, no, he's, he's, Leroy's not a mole. It, what it is is it turns out that this deal apparently, and we don't know all the details of this deal, but this deal apparently started out as Atari and Mark Wynn working on this carnival thing, this carnival trailer together, but then it kind of turned into Mark Wynn is starting to manufacture its own cabinets and is using some of the materials Atari gave them as part of working out this project to maybe go into business themselves, sort of. Because once the cabinets were rejected by Atari, Mark Wynn was kind of stuck with all of these cabinets that no one would take. So he decided to sell the games anyway because he needed to make his money back. Now, what's exactly wrong with the cabinets? Why were they rejected? Just because they were unsuitable. Their dimensions were off. The manufacturing processes were off. They just weren't good coin-op cabinets for Atari products. They weren't a spec. The top is smaller than the bottom or something like that, or vice versa. Yep. They kind of poached these Atari people because Atari people are unhappy. I mean, I don't think Holly was unhappy. He just thought that going down there could end up being a help for Atari because he could help get this thing off the ground when they were still in partnership. Pat Carnes goes down because... He's just completely dissatisfied with the state of management with Wakefield and uh, Mobilio and, and all of the people that have been brought in. Larry Leppert, the engineer, I think is also kind of disgruntled, though I don't know his exact reasons for leaving. So they've got the sales guy, Pat Carnes, who was the sales guy at Atari before he left. They have a prominent engineer in Larry Leppard, and they have a technician in Holly Leroy, which is really all you need. They have a very, very basic coin-op games operation going. After these guys come in, it starts becoming this funneling. A lot of Atari people start showing up because Atari's in trouble in this period. Atari is in legitimate, real trouble. It could have gone bankrupt in this period of time. Just to be 100% clear, what time frame is this? 1974. So once you get a trickle of Atari people coming into Mark Quinn, it quickly becomes a flood. Pretty soon after, there's a manufacturing guy that shows up. There's a purchasing guy that shows up, people that had been at Atari. As Holly himself put it, Ethan, he felt like this was starting to become Atari South. South because they're located south of Atari's location. I think at this point we're getting into 1975, actually. I mean, this whole saga starts in 74, but by the time we're starting to get the mass exodus, it's 1975. Somebody, probably not Larry, but somebody in all of this brought some Atari components with him. It was probably the manufacturing guy. I mean, that would make the most sense. 
he'd have the greatest access to parts. And, and I don't have a name for this manufacturing guy. That's why I'm not naming him. It was probably the manufacturing guy, actually, rather than the engineer. So they had a bunch of Atari components, and they were going to start creating games. You know, Atari gets wind of this. Atari figures out what's going on, and Atari sues Marquin. That puts a halt to everything. At this point, Obi Alvarez enters the picture, Roberto Alvarez. Apparently, Alvarez was also involved in the Marquin thing. We don't know exactly how in specifics, but apparently some of the components that Marquin was going to be using in its cabinets and whatnot were also coming from Alvarez, who we may recall has a relation to the industry because he's part of this company that makes the uh, shipping containers that coin-op cabinets are shipped in. Alvarez is unhappy because he's been supplying Mark Wynn as well, and because Mark Wynn can't get this operation off the ground, he's not getting paid either. When he comes down and sees what's going on and figures out that the operation is a shambles, he makes the exact same decision that Mark Wynn made. It's like, well, if we can't do this stuff ourselves with Atari and everyone get paid, I'll become a competitor to Atari because this looks like a nice recession-proof business and yada, yada, yada. So at this point, then, everyone shifts over to fun games. I mean, not the Quins, but now that Mark Wynn has been stopped in their tracks by this lawsuit, everything now shifts over to fun games. So Pat Carnes goes to fun games, Larry Leppard goes, Holly Leroy goes. All of this Atari migration <laughs> moves over to this new fun games established by Alvarez. According to Leroy... The way this goes down now in terms of getting these ROMs is the manufacturing guy brought another employee with him that Holly didn't want to name, I think, because you can get into trouble with libel or slander or whatnot if you make allegations of that kind without proof against a person. But basically, the manufacturing guy I talked about had another employee with him. Leroy is pretty sure that they're the two that hatched this ROM theft scheme. According to Holly, he and Larry were left in the dark. The manufacturing guy claimed to him that they had gotten a few Atari ROMs from a game distributor, which is something that happens. That's not necessarily illegal, as long as you're not actually using the actual Atari property itself, if you're just cloning, which is what Fun Games did. It's not strictly illegal if you got those parts through a legal process and reverse engineered it. We may remember when we talked about the Pong clones that one of the first companies to get involved in cloning Pong, Allied Leisure, was actually sent a Pong cabinet by a West Coast distributor, Advanced Automatic, specifically so that they could copy it and put it in production because the distributors were frustrated that they couldn't get all the Pongs they needed from Atari. So they wanted a competitor that they could order from. So Advanced Automatic actually sent a cabinet to Allied Leisure and was like, here's the hot new game. We can't get enough. Can you make us something like this? Allied Leisure dissected it, made a copy of it in partnership with URL in Chicago, as we talked about, and then released Paddle Battle. And that was legal. That was fine. You know, you can talk about the ethics of ripping off someone else's game if you want, but there's nothing illegal about it, right? Exactly. 
that would have been fine if they had really gotten Atari ROMs from a game distributor and that's what they were using to make their own knockoffs. It would have been ethically dubious, but it would not have been illegal. Larry, the poor guy that's been holding the bag so long and being accused of being a big part of the theft, and uh, Holly, who was directly accused in the book Business is Fun of being the main guy behind the theft by probably Gene Lipkin, may have been innocent of actual true wrongdoing. They may have been duped into thinking that these ROMs came from a distributor rather than coming directly from Atari, but as it turns out, they were actually stolen materials. The manufacturing manager or his buddy or someone else they knew, I don't know exactly who, and obviously I don't want to call somebody out without knowing for sure, actually funneled those materials out of Atari, and they were using stolen Atari equipment, ROMs and boards, to make these games like Biplane and Tankers. Of course, Atari sued. They sued Fun Games. They sued a bunch of people individually. It was a real problem. Basically, while this lawsuit was going on, they couldn't do anything. I mean, they couldn't really release Atari knockoffs anymore. They even didn't have much time to actually work on original games because they were having to do depositions and testify and do all of this legal stuff, and they weren't a large team. If Larry Leppert is testifying for weeks on end, that's time that he can't be engineering, and he is the engineer. They don't have other engineers. Basically, the company is paralyzed during the lawsuit and can't get any new product out and ends up being purchased by Meadows Games, another coin-op manufacturer, in 1977, which brings an end to this two-year saga of fun games. The story that was in the book is that Leopard and Carnes left Atari. Leopard kind of went to Mark Wynn first with stolen materials and tried to do something there then moved on to fun games with his stolen materials and tried to do something there. We definitely want to issue a retraction there. That is probably incorrect. It was actually these other people, this manufacturing guy who was doing the stealing, Larry and Holly, were kind of led along and duped. The whole Marquin, Oberto Alvarez, Larry Leopard, Pat Carms triangle is way more complicated. As Ethan himself said, at the end of the day, if you want to blame anyone for this, it's Lloyd Warman's fault, the VP of engineering at Atari at this time, because he's the one that sent these people down to work with Mark Wynn, and then everything just got slowly corrupted over time until everyone was in too deep with a guy who may have had mafia connections. And then there were lawsuits, and it went all explodey. We will make you a video game you can't refuse. Right. So that's the fun story of fun games. And if I ever get to do a second edition of my book, I will definitely provide way more of that nuance on the fun game story. It's an interesting story. It's it's good to tell it here because it really wouldn't sustain a full episode. It's definitely worth taking a chunk of an episode like this to just get in on all of the crazy that was happening with that situation. That's why we do these episodes, so that we can get the bits and pieces that we can't do normally. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so we had fun with fun games. Who's the next victim? The next thing I want to talk about is returning once again to Space Invaders. And the whole, did it cause a coin shortage in Japan thing. If I recall correctly, you said that it did not. That is what I said. Now I want to change my testimony. 
your honor. Which is kind of impressive. You made a very good case there that <laughs> there was no coin shortage. It's just this constant legend that was sort of built up around it. But if you look at all of the stuff that's going on in Japan, there wasn't a coin shortage. The diet wasn't saying, hey, you, give us our coins back or else. Yeah, exactly. All of that is still true. But now that I've done more research, I've swung back the other way. It looks like that there probably actually was a shortage, but that the lie or the exaggeration was that the shortage was big and long-standing and went on for months and months and months. What it looks like actually happened is that there was a shortage, but it only lasted for a couple of months, and then it was corrected. When people first started trying to debunk the myth of the 100-yen coin shortage, they were looking at a facet of the myth that said that there was triple coin production, that basically so many coins were going into Space Invaders' cabinets There were no coins left, and the Mint had to start tripling production of coins to make up the shortfall. When people started examining this myth in more detail, what they were looking for is like, first of all, was there really a tripling of coin production? Because these are records, and these are public records. These are the kind of things you can check. What the researcher that really looked into this, a guy who specializes in coin stuff, who wrote a journal article on this, what he found was it didn't look like coin production was unusual in Japan in 78-79. Any increase in coin production was more likely down to the fact that they were actually changing the metal composition at that time of 100 yen coins because the metals they were using, you know, the price of metal goes up and then you're literally paying more to manufacture your money than the money's worth and so you change to cheaper materials They were going through this transition period at that time, so they were producing a lot of 100 yen coins in this period, but they were doing it largely because they were transitioning to this new composition of the 100 yen coin. That article was very convincing, and it was very well researched, and it pretty well put to rest the idea that there was this shortage that caused this massive increase in production. On the other side, there were my interviews with Ed Miller and Paul Moriarty, who were the number one and number two guys at Taito America at this time, who were also very dialed in with what was going on in Japan. Particularly Ed Miller was dialed in with what was going on in Japan because he had joined the Japanese company first and had been a buyer for the Japanese company before Taito America had even been opened. He was very well embedded there. Both of them discussed the situation that you referred to earlier, which was basically that the 100 yen coins were not getting turned around fast enough, that they were going into machines. And then, of course, once they're in machines, you have to get them out of the machines. You have to transfer them to corporate to count all the money. Once you count all the money, you have to get it back out to the banks, and then the banks have to deposit them and put them back in circulation. You've got that whole thing going on, because we may recall that most arcades, most game centers in Japan in this time period, are not independent operations like arcades in the United States are. They are actually owned by the manufacturers. They're owned by Sega. They're owned by Taito. They're owned by Namco. Taito is the one that's actually making all this money. 
They have to get the coins out of the machines at all their locations, and they have to send them through their accounting process. It's presumably not a guy in the back room of the arcade itself that's counting things up and then making a local deposit. There were problems with this entire process of getting the coins back into circulation. We know from Ed and Paul that the diet did get involved and was like, guys, you have to turn this around faster. This is no good. We need these coins. Because of that, we figured, all of us, I mean, myself, Ethan, other people, Keith Smith, no relation, who does All in Color for a Quarter on arcade games, we all kind of figured, okay, that's it. That's where the story came from. There may have been some shortages someplace or another, like very regionally or very briefly, but there was no increasing production of coins and there was no real national shortage. It's just that there was intense pressure to get the coin circulation continuing to flow. That's kind of where we were at the time that I wrote the book and at the time we did our episodes that discussed this whole situation. Since then, I have been doing translating, and and Ethan has been doing some translating too, of the definitive book on the Japanese coin-op video game industry a book that title roughly translates to in the beginning there was Pong or at the beginning Pong, but it's basically a book that covers the entire Japanese industry. It covers some stuff in America too, but the author, Akagi, relies mostly on Stephen Kent for the information from America, so it's not that great. But Kagi is actually the coin-op guy in Japan. He was the editor of, or maybe still is the editor of Japan's coin-operated trade publication Game Machine He knows the industry. He knows the players. He's been covering it since nearly the beginning. He is the expert, and in 2005, he wrote a book on all of this. It's only in Japanese, of course, with the advances in machine translation, with DeepL and uh, even Google Translate has changed their algorithms in the last few years so that it's grown infinitely more competent. We are now able to reasonably translate Japanese. It's still not perfect. As a pictographic language where each kanji can have multiple meanings depending on context, where they don't always observe niceties like pronouns and stuff in Japanese, it's a language that does not lend itself to translating because it is so context-dependent and uh, an AI or an algorithm that is trying to work with Japanese It's not nearly as straightforward as working with Spanish or French or German, but it's better than it was. We're actually getting fairly coherent translations of some of these books. Now we have Akagi's account of the coin shortage. What he looked at is he wasn't looking at yearly numbers. He was looking at the monthly figures, which no one else had been looking at. The guy that did the article for the Coin Journal the academic article, you know, he was looking at the yearly figures. What Akagi looked at was the monthly figures. Production does fluctuate because people don't spend money evenly throughout the year. There are periods of the year when there are major holidays or that are major vacation periods, etc., where people do spend more money. And there are periods where people spend less money. And so, of course, the production of coins throughout the year, which is based on what the banks are requesting based on their own reserves, fluctuates throughout the year. It turns out that in the height of the Space Invaders boom, 
which was kind of March, April 1979. That's when this was peaking. This is a period of time when coin production is usually very low. It's after the holidays because they sort of do the whole Christmas thing, even though it's not a traditional Japanese holiday, and they have other holidays that encourage spending in the same period that in the West we have the Christmas season. It's kind of between that big holiday spending period and then the big kind of summer vacation period. So you're kind of February, March, April. That's a period of time when you usually see less spending, and therefore you need fewer coins. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not spending as much money, therefore you need fewer coins. Therefore, I don't expect to have a shortage at all because I'm meeting the demand. Whatever turnover is going on or whatever coins get destroyed for whatever reason, we're replenishing them. Exactly. So generally speaking, the busiest months for coin production in Japan are July, August, November, December. Summer vacation months and winter holiday months. That's when people spend. Usually, you see a decrease in production throughout January, February, March, April. That's just how you do it. So if you look at the monthly figures in 1978, this is what Akagi did. January saw a decrease in production of 790 billion yen from previous month. Then in March, you had a decrease of 1 billion yen And then in April, you got an increase of 2.8 billion yen because you're getting into a period where things are starting to pick up again. Then if you look at 1979, in January, there was a decrease of 890 billion yen. So that's pretty similar to January 1978. Then in February, there was a decrease of 790 billion yen, which, again, is pretty much right on target with the year before. But then in March, there was suddenly an increase in production by 2.1 billion yen. 2.1. Yeah, 2.1. March is usually a decrease month, a decline month. The year before, there was a decline in production in March because that's not a month that's associated with heavy spending. So banks weren't requesting money. But suddenly in March 1979, it goes up hugely. Yeah, I mean, you just had a decrease of just shy of a billion a month before then you're taking that all back and then some by two to three times. The year before, there was a decrease of one billion yen in March in production. Right. Arguably, you're talking about three to four times compared to the previous year. You're talking about tripling production, which is what the story is. Exactly. But we all assumed that the story was saying that they tripled production for the year. Not the month. Not the month. Exactly. And then April had a decrease in, I think I said increase earlier, but it had, April had a decrease in 78 and then had an increase in 79. It wasn't nearly as big an increase as in March, but once again, there was March and April. Those two months were really unusual. And in March, it was unusual like three times as much, tripled. Mm -hmm. There probably was a shortage. And Akagi actually explains this. What happened is the banks got fed up. Coins are heavy. There are stories, you know, from the Taito people about the trucks and to collect the coins having tires go out because they're just so weighed down with coins that the pressure takes out the tires. Coins are heavy. Coins are annoying to count. You have to sort them. You have to send them through counting. They didn't have the fun counting machines that we have today. For coins. I don't know exactly what you had on the bank side for counting coins in the 70s. 
You might have had some automation in that, but you didn't have some of the machines that we have today that make that so easy. So you have to unload all of those coins. You have to store all those coins. You have to count all those coins. It's a pain. Banks got tired of it and started refusing to take huge amounts of coins from the public in deposit. They didn't want to take these truckloads of coins anymore from companies like Taito. They're a pain in the ass. Banks are deliberately not taking in all the coins that they could take in. I mean, they're not just refusing to take coins from anybody. They no longer want these trucks full of coins showing up. They no longer want the equivalent of, like, Scrooge McDuck's money bin showing up at their doorstep every couple of weeks. You gotta page that stuff out. Exactly. At the same time, you have the public breaking their bills into coins more and more because they need coins to play these games. The public needs more coins from the bank at the same time that the bank is refusing to take in as many coins from the public. So things get out of balance. Then all of a sudden the banks realize, oh no, our coin reserves are getting low. When the bank's coin reserves are getting low, what they do is they tell the central bank and they tell the mint, we need more coins. And that's part of the decision-making that goes into how many coins are created by the government. You would think that if the banks were going, hey, we're out of coins, maybe we should take in a few more of those truckloads. That's eventually how things get worked out. I'm sure that's why the diet intervened and there were negotiations. This all tracks. You know, we talked about how Ed Miller and Paul Moriarty said that the diet got involved in making sure that the coins get out of the machines and back to the banks more efficiently. We just assumed that that was all about the supply end, that Taito and and those people making sure that they got the coins turned around faster. But I think part of that negotiation was also about making sure the banks accepted the coins. This took everybody by surprise. I mean, they corrected it within a couple of months, right? I mean, the banks did realize their mistake, obviously. But for a couple of months there, the banks didn't know what were going on. I mean, bankers were probably not going out and playing Space Invaders and seeing all of this happening in real time. They didn't realize there was an unusual pressure going on. All they knew is they didn't want to take in so many coins. I don't think they anticipated that So many coins were going into these machines that if they didn't take these coins, they'd have a problem. Once everyone realized this was a problem, they got it sorted out. And that's why if you look at the yearly figure, which is what the other guy did, if you look at the yearly figure, it's not that unusual. Because over the course of the entire calendar year, they figured this out. They straightened out production. As those coins re-entered circulation, as they smoothed out this process of getting them out of the machines and getting them to the banks, they could then lower production of coins later in the year because they had enough coin. In aggregate, over the course of the year, everything just sort of smoothed out because you were taking in all the coins we weren't taking in earlier. Therefore, we don't have to make as many coins to make up the deficit. Exactly. Over the course of the year, it balances out and it doesn't look so out of place. It certainly doesn't look like a tripling. But in that month of March, compared to previous month of March, they did, in fact, triple production. That's good to see. It's good to see Akagi's explanation. And it's good to see that he was able to get into this more in depth, because the thing that was always interesting about the 100 yen coin shortage myth is that it was contemporaneous to events. In 1980, 
newspapers in the U.S. that were reporting on the whole Space Invaders phenomenon were talking about how it had caused a shortage of coins in Japan. So many of these myths come about because somebody says something like 10 years later or 20 years later, and then it gets accepted at face value, it gets printed in a bunch of articles, then it gets printed in a book. Pretty soon, everyone just assumes that's the way it was, but then you go back and look at the original sources, you don't see that anywhere, and in fact, sometimes you see something that's just the opposite. That's how most of these myths get born. Or you have a situation like you have a huckster that's self-promoting themselves from the beginning, so like myths about Pong and Atari go back to contemporaneous sources, but that's because Nolan Bushnell is out there talking himself up at the expense of people like Ted Dabney. Those are the two situations you usually see where myths develop. It's very unusual to have a myth where the contemporaneous sources that are neutral sources, like the press, are reporting on something at the time that it happened or within a couple of years of it happening. It's very rare for myths to spring up like that. It's not impossible. There could still be a self-promoter at the end of the line. It could be that the reporter was getting quotes from people from Taito, and Taito had a reason to give this exaggeration because it made their game look all the more popular and impressive. Or you could have a reporter that just got their facts wrong, did their research wrong. You could put it down to the language barrier that, you know, American sources reporting on the Japanese don't have the full picture. I mean, there are logical explanations for why it could have been a myth, but it still didn't follow the typical pattern of a myth because a myth like that usually shows up years after the fact, not right as things are happening. So it's certainly possible that they did have their sources right because it was happening during the time they'd go, oh, in Japan during that month, March, April. We're getting this bigger production. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. When people look back at it, like you and everyone else, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, they go, well, that doesn't make sense anymore because look at these yearly figures. Obviously, we should see something here. But it's when you look at it within the moment. You were looking at it too much at a macro view to see where the nuance was. And then once you drill down to the month level, you're able to get the detail and go, oh, yeah, that's where it came from. Exactly. That's where this kind of thing can happen when you take figures out of context. There's actually another really good example of this. This is not book errata. This is not something that I've reported incorrectly or that we've reported incorrectly in the past on the podcast. A similar example is the PC Engine, which in the United States was released as the TurboGrafx-16. The PC Engine was released by NEC, Nippon Electric Corporation, in conjunction with Hudson Soft as a competitor to the Famicom, to the NES. A lot of Western retrospective sources like game site articles or retro gaming magazine articles or whatnot will present you with the fact that the PC Engine was so popular in Japan, you know, it never got anywhere in the United States, but it was so popular for a brief period in Japan that in its first year on the market, 1987, it actually outsold the Famicom. That's huge, right? Because the Famicom, the family computer, is the dominant video game system by far in Japan. I mean, the NES was the dominant video game system in the United States as well, and to a pretty high level by the end, it had like 90-95% of the market. But I mean, in Japan, it just crushed everything. 
1987, the family comes older. It's been out since 1983 in its native country. So it's like, okay, I guess maybe that could happen. So there's a new system on the market. Everyone already has a Famicom. So sure, maybe the PC Engine did outsell the Famicom that one year. And wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that the system actually outsold the Famicom. But then when you look at the figures that have been compiled, because I've found some journal articles that compiled figures in Japan, yearly sales for hardware, the PC Engine was nowhere near the Famicom in sales in 1987. It didn't outsell the Famicom. Of course, it makes sense that it didn't outsell the Famicom because, as I just said, the Famicom was huge. I mean, yes, it was old by 1987. The boom period, the peak was over. But, I mean, the PC Engine was never that successful. It did okay in Japan. But, of course, why would it have sold more than the Famicom in 1987? Then you ask yourself, okay, so this is wrong, but why did this get reported in the West? Why did Western sources say the PC Engine outsold the Famicom in 1987? At some point, I found the answer to this question. What happened is that the PC Engine, in its first year on the market, sold more than the Famicom did in its first year on the market. So the nuances of what numbers we're actually comparing is critical here. Right. If I'm going with the first year of releasing the Famicom versus the first year of releasing the PC Engine, yeah, there's a difference because the Famicom really established the video game industry in Japan. Mm -hmm. By that point, people go like, yeah, great, games are good. I like video games. Hey, PC Engine, you might have a lot of fun games. My initial test of you is going to be higher overall because the public is familiar with video games. And yes, Nintendo is off of its peak and it's on a slow decline of the Famicom. Let's give this a try and see if this is something we want. Yay, nay, maybe we don't care. We're not necessarily comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges. I think the West source there just needs to give the proper context. The way they spun it is that the PC Engine was able to outsell the Famicom. It's fantastic. Never mind that we're comparing that this Famicom, when the Famicom launched versus when the PC Engine launched, not when the PC Engine launched versus to what current Famicom sales are. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, that just got lost, whether it was a language barrier thing, English language, Western sources reporting on something from Japan or whether they just weren't paying attention and and they did have a proper translation, but they weren't paying attention to what was being stated. This got twisted in the West to be the PC Engine outsold the Famicom in 1987. In truth, all it meant is the PC Engine in 1987 sold more than the Famicom did in 1983, which, like you said, is not surprising for a variety of reasons. Exactly. You have to be careful about those numbers, and that's how these myths can start. So now I've I've gone back. I boldly proclaim the Space Invaders 100 yen coin shortage was a myth. And now I am boldly proclaiming that it was not a myth. You got better information. And that is really something that a lot of people, when they look at history, don't understand. That history is more fluid than we give it credit for because we don't know. Exactly. I don't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Someone is going to probably <laughs> report that Jeffrey... Eight pancakes. I might have actually just ate eggs. Right. But now that I have said that in the past yesterday I ate pancakes, therefore eggs are now the new history. We don't know. 
because of this research, this thing that's done by historians that look at all of these records, try to look at these original sources, try to look at the context, the people, the places, the outside influences, it really becomes almost like a game of numbers where you go, this source I give a certain level of credibility to. This other source I give a level of credibility to. All of these sources saying something is true combined have a level of credibility to it, and that is probably the narrative. But then you look at some other source that might be so powerful in its credibility that it says, um, no, all of you are wrong because of this. They reevaluate that situation and go. I mean, I will uh, try to look up that episode where we talk about the coin episode. Listen to what Alex says there. Listen to his conviction. Listen to how he presented that. It's a very convincing case and completely understandable based on the facts and the context we have at the time. Now that we have new evidence has been entered into the playing field, we now understand, hey, yeah, we can see where this stuff came from. Maybe that ties into some of these things where we go, if we claim that something is a rumor is wrong, maybe we should see how that has come about because that might give us context into either where the error is or maybe that the information is correct, but it's being misinterpreted. This is something that is true to something that Alex has said to me many times whenever he plays certain kinds of characters in tabletop sessions that we're in. The best lie is the one with a little bit of truth to it. (laughs) That's the same thing with these coins. There's a little bit of truth there. Yeah, there was three times production. Never mind it was a month. (laughs) They take that and run with it, and they exaggerate it and twist it into this lie of, oh, for the year, there was three times production. Panic, mass hysteria, coins gone to the midst of ancient times. Never mind that it was three months. That's really what it boils down to. Absolutely it is. I'm glad that we can clear that up in podcast form here. And and again, if I get to do a a second edition of the book, or if I do another book that covers the same material later, you know, I I will definitely be sure to correct the record on that. Because that's an interesting one, definitely, just because of how we have gone back and forth so much with such conviction, as you say. (laughs) Now, you said you wanted to do three corrections. What is our third correction? The third thing I want to talk about is getting a little more involved in the very first computer games that were made available for microcomputers, for personal computers. That is a subject that is hard to research because, as we talked about in some of our early uh, computer game episodes, the whole computer game industry kind of grew and developed in a very haphazard kind of way because the value of software as something that a person would be interested in as opposed to the hardware was something that was very slow to develop generally. As, as we've talked about many times in the 50s, the 60s, even in some cases into the early 70s when you were buying big institutional machines like IBM mainframe computers, what you were buying was the hardware. And then they would have a software catalog. They have made programs for the computer. But what you're buying is the hardware, and then you pick and choose the software you want to include. You didn't buy your computer one day and then be like, okay, I want this database program, so 
today I'm buying the database program I'm using with my computer. No, it was I'm buying a computer by IBM and IBM makes this database available, this calculation program available, this whatever available, and I'm going to tell IBM which things that I want installed on my computer. Very different to how we do things today where, honestly, it's almost flipped on its head. We buy things based off of the software and the hardware just like, as long as it can support it, by and large, we don't care. Exactly. That's why it's very hard to kind of figure out when the first products were being offered because in many cases, stuff was being bundled with hardware and stuff was being printed in books as opposed to being put on magnetic medium or there were paper tape type in listings. You know, there, there were all, all of these things. And it's one of these things that you really have to dive deep into the computer magazines of the time, which did exist look for advertisements and look when products were first advertised. Some of them are going to be books. Some of them are going to be tapes. Some of them are going to be paper tape. Some of them are going to be magnetic tape, cassette tape. It's just a mess. And of course, I tried to do as much of that research as I could. But one of the problems with creating a book series about the history of everything is that you only have so much time to research any individual specific thing. Because there's so much, even though I've been doing this research for 16 years or more, there's a lot. That's why you have to rely on other people who take a more narrow focus on things. Exactly. Like I've done really deep dive in-depth research in certain areas, like I've interviewed more executives of Atari than anyone else in existence, for instance. I've done my deep dives where I've been able to, but I do often rely on the work of others. And if there's an area where the research is incomplete, which the early history of computer games is definitely a place where the research is incomplete, there's only so much time I can devote to digging stuff up. It's much more likely that I'm going to miss something. So what did we miss? Well, I'll tell you, Jeffrey. The story of the beginning of individual computer games for sale is tricky for the reasons that I articulated. Now, we know that there were games available. You know, David All did his 101 basic computer games in 1973, where he gathered a bunch of games together. There were other books of computer games, even going back to the late 1960s. The idea of buying something that gives you games definitely goes back to at least the 1960s. And that's something I knew at the time I wrote the book, too. What is interesting to try to distinguish is when an individual game was first made available for sale. Like, you're not buying a book that gives you a lot of things. You're not buying a magazine that happens to have some type-in listings in it. When did somebody decide, we've got a cool game that you can do in the home. It's so cool that we think that you would be happy to just buy this game and nothing else. It turns out that some of the earliest products of this type were actually done in the form of books, booklets of pamphlets instead of even on tape. So in my book, when I'm talking about the beginnings of this type of industry, I link the first individual games for sale to the emergence of the first really fancy 
display systems created for computers. Because when the first home computers came out, the first microcomputer kits, things like the Altair, we've talked about this before, these were boxes, literally metal boxes, full of components, which of course you had to solder and assemble yourself. All you had on your machine were some lights that could blink and some switches that you could use, you know, flick on and off to represent ones and zeros binary code. The idea of doing a computer game on just a base system like that, there's not much you can do with it. I mean, people were playing games in computer labs on many computers and mainframes, sometimes using teletype inputs where it printed out reams of paper, sometimes on video display terminals where you had an actual CRT. In terms of the home, when you bought a computer, all you got was a box with switches and blinking lights. There are certain really primitive kinds of games you could technically do with that. Certainly you could do the game of NIM with nothing but blinking lights. But there isn't a lot you can do with that. So I kind of linked the very first games that were available for individual purchase to the emergence of the first kind of cool display boards that you could plug into a computer like the Altair, and then it gave it an output to a television or a monitor. One of the really early ones of these was the Dazzler display, which was put out by a company called Chromemco. Another one was something called the VDM-1 that was put out by a company called Processor Technology or Processor Tech. These came out in 1976. It's hard to pinpoint when some of these projects came out because the hobbyist magazines would announce their existence months before you could actually buy them. So it can be pretty tricky to figure out when exactly these things came out because the announcement date in the magazine is not necessarily the date it was actually available. Sometime in mid to late 1976, you had these boards come out. Then, before the end of 1976, Processor Tech went a step further and created the first, or at least the first kind of widespread well-known, and possibly even the very first, it can be tricky when there are hobbyist projects going on everywhere, a computer that had integrated graphics right out of the box, that being the Sol 20. It had a built-in video capability right from the get-go. You didn't have to buy an add-on board from another company in order to make that work, like you did with an Altair. Because Promemco and Processor Tech now had these devices, a video board in the case of Promemco, a whole computer in the case of Processor Tech, they started advertising programs, of course, that could take advantage of this graphical capability. So I had tied the very first games in with these products in 1976. When the Dazzler was released, they started advertising a version of Space War in October 1976. It cost $15 to get the paper tape. You didn't get it on magnetic media. You got it on paper tape. I thought that that was the first individual game offered for sale for a microcomputer. That's what I put in the book. And then I also mentioned that in December 1976, Processor Tech started selling two tape collections one called Game Pack 1 that included several games, and one called Trek 80 that specifically had a real-time version of the classic Mike Mayfield Star Trek game that they started offering in December 1976. At least that's the first time ads show up in the magazines. So I thought those were the first offerings. 
Other people, most notably uh, Kate Willard, who does fantastic work researching a wide variety of areas of video and computer game history. Kate Willard did some more deep dives on some of this, and she found some things that are even earlier than that. First of all, I had somehow missed even that with the Dazzler, Space War was not the first game they started advertising. I was correct that they were advertising the game, and I was correct about when they were advertising it, but they actually ran one even earlier than that. They actually also had a tic-tac-toe program that they had made available at least by August. I don't necessarily have an exact month in 1976 of when it was released. It doesn't seem like it was released much earlier than that, if it was at all. There's a catalog from August that the company put out. That catalog advertises the Dazzler, and that catalog includes the tic-tac-toe game available for $15. By August, they had a tic-tac-toe game, because not everything was games. They had a kaleidoscope program that was just kaleidoscopic images on your fancy screen. They had a program called Dazzlemation that did very primitive computer-generated animated displays. They had Life, which some people might consider a game. It's sometimes called a game, but it's really more of a simulation than a game, because all you do is set up some basic parameters, and then you watch the whole thing just happen. It's not really a game. But they did have a tic-tac-toe game, at least in August, because a catalog they put out had that. And that's before Space War. So that's my first mistake, is that Space War was not the very first game available for the Dazzler. But, and this is Kate Willard's research again, it turns out that there was one even before the Dazzler programs. And to get to the heart of that, we actually have to talk about another computer company that is only a footnote in my book, literally only a footnote in my book, and probably needs to be expanded a little bit now with this new information put out by a company by the name of Selby. People, when they're trying to pinpoint the first microcomputer kit, there are a lot of contenders. There are a lot of one-off projects. There are a lot of tiny things that had small runs. There was the McCrawl in France that was largely sold to like businesses or labs. There was something called the Kinbok that I think came out of Canada that didn't really do much. The Altair is the computer that really first made the microcomputer industry a thing. Even though its sales numbers were also small initially, its numbers were much better than these little one-offs that came before it. The Altair was selling in the thousands when previous computers were probably not selling in more than the dozens or perhaps the low hundreds. One computer that is interesting but is kind of obscure is the Selby 8H computer, which actually came out in March of 1974, so like almost a full year before the Altair came out. The Selby is interesting as a footnote because it was the first computer kit that was advertised in the hobbyist magazines for purchase by ordinary individuals. Early microcomputers like the McCrawl were largely being sold, like I said, to scientific customers. They weren't really being thought of as hobbyist computers that you were selling in the hobbyist magazines as kits. The Altair was the first kind of big kit, but the Selby 8H was on the market even before that. Selby was established in August 1974 
by a guy named Nat Wadsworth and actually was a kind of clunky acronym for scientific, electronic, and biological. That's what the name Selby stood for. The Selby 8H was something that Wadsworth had come up with. He was an employee of a company called General Datacom that was involved in electronics. In 1973, he attended a seminar put on by Intel where they were showing off their fancy, relatively new, still at that point, 8008 microprocessor. He was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I bet I can do fun things with this. So he gets himself an 8008, he fools around with it, and he builds this computer that he calls the Selby 8H and advertises it starting in March 1974 in a magazine called QST for purchase. And then he founded the company that August because now he had a product and now he had people presumably going to be giving him money, so he needed an entity to accept that money. The Selby 8H never really caught on. The 8008 was not a great processor for computers. It was the first 8-bit processor out of Intel. Because it was 8-bit, it did technically sort of have enough power to run a computer, but just in the way the architecture was put together, it wasn't good at doing a lot of things with any kind of speed. Therefore, it was kind of inferior to the 8080 that came out later, which is, of course, the processor that powered the Altair. First strike against it is the 8008 wasn't a great processor. Second strike against it was Nat actually went through some health issues at this time. So he had trouble getting computers built, marketed, shipped, etc. He wasn't able to really devote his full attention to building an install base. Then once the Altair came along with the superior 8080 processor and still at a reasonable price, then a lot of people that were waiting for Selby's basically canceled their orders and decided to order Altairs instead because it was just a much better computer. So that was the end of Selby as a computer maker. Past Alex thought that was the end of Selby, period. I did not realize that after that Selby computer failed, the company Selby continued on. So I had a footnote about the Selby 8H in my chapter on the early microcomputers because it is an interesting footnote for being the first computer advertised in a hobbyist publication, the first microcomputer. What Kate discovered that I didn't realize is that they continued after that doing software instead of hardware. He came up with a new business model where he would create programs for various microprocessors. He wasn't creating programs for specific computers, but as microprocessors came out, like the Intel 8008-8080 or the Motorola 6800, etc., he would release interesting programs that could be used with those processors and therefore, by extension, could be used with very little modification with any computer that was powered by said processor. He decided not to do these on a magnetic media like cassette tape because this was the very early Wild West days and he was afraid that there wouldn't be a standard yet, that if he put something on magnetic media to be readable by a cassette drive, that he may end up backing the wrong horse and something else comes along that does it slightly differently and then that becomes the standard and then his programs that he's duplicated on all these cassettes will immediately be obsolete. He just didn't know that there would necessarily be a standard. Instead of doing paper tape, which is what Promemco and Processor Tech did, he actually published these as books. If you're talking about the first programs that were not in a book, 
then the Chromemco stuff for the Dazzler still is in the lead because it was on paper tape. This is still kind of the first microcomputer software sold individually because it's still different from 101 basic computer games, for instance, which is a big book of basic listings that is not made for any specific computer that's targeted as much at that time at many computer users as it is at microcomputer users, which in 1973 didn't even exist yet. And it's a huge group of programs, little simple programs, rather than selling one specific program. So even though it's not on paper tape or magnetic tape or floppies, this still kind of counts as the first individually sold microcomputer game program. In April 1976, so even a few months before the Tic-Tac-Toe program was available, the Dazzler was out by April 1976. As I kind of hinted at earlier, the Tic-Tac-Toe program was not available then. We have an ad for the Dazzler from April 1976 that lists several programs, and the Tic-Tac-Toe program is not listed there. Then we have the August 1976 ad. That ad has all of the programs from the April 1976 ad plus Tic-Tac-Toe. We don't know exactly when Tic-Tac-Toe came out, but it was sometime after April and by August. With this program, because it was a book form, it was actually copyrighted. So we have the copyright records for the Selby book. So we know for a fact from the copyright records that in April 1876, Selby released something called Galaxy Game that was created for, as it says right on the cover, created for the 8008-8080 microprocessor. Now it seems that that is probably the very first individually packaged game released specifically for a microcomputer. I know that's a lot of caveats on top of caveats on top of caveats. Whenever you're dealing in firsts, it's very fraught, and you're always having to qualify what you mean when you say the first of this or that. This really does seem to be the first one. We have not at this point found anything earlier than April 1976, and it's highly unlikely that anyone would have been doing something like that before April 76, because we're getting way too early in the movement. Like I said, you could take 101 basic computer games, make very slight modifications to make that work with like Altair Basic, and you could put any of those games that you wanted on an Altair. It's not like you couldn't put a game on a microcomputer before April 1976. But this is probably the first time somebody was like, hey, I can sell a computer program for a microprocessor. There you have it. I'm wrong again, Jeffrey, in the book. There's the rest of the story. Well, I certainly will have to get in contact with The Guardian and have you flogged for insolence as a bad historian. I have not proven my worthiness for my reward. <laughs> <laughs> You will not want this history after I'm done with it. (laughs) So there you have it. Obviously, there are other tiny errors in the book. At some point, I am keeping track of these. At some point, we'll probably put an errata listing of some kind on the website because our website, They Create Worlds, has stuff for the podcast, for the book, for everything. Those three things in particular are very interesting missteps with interesting stories behind them. And so... None of them on their own were enough to make up a full episode, but it kind of made sense to do an episode where we could take these little vignettes and 
tie them together under this theme of mistakes made in the book and then tied into the larger theme of it's been six years. It's our anniversary. Let's look back at some things we did in the past. All right. Well, that's revisions and updates three. (laughs) Absolutely. Next time, we're going to have to sit down by a fire, get some popcorn, gather around Grandpa Alex's chair and go, tell us a story from a book, Grandpa. Tell us about history. That's right. So we did this once before, right when the book was released. But for those that don't know, and hopefully there aren't many of you at this point, I wrote a book. Yay. They Create Worlds Volume 1, story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, covering kind of the prehistory up till about 1981-1982, first of three volumes. When the book was released, we did a reading from it where I kind of read and, and did some annotations, you know, discussing where stuff came from. You know, that was fun. Don't want to read the whole book uh, over the course of the podcast just for copyright reasons and whatever else. But in this period when we're looking for, admittedly looking for uh, easy episodes to do (laughs) while I am frantically trying to move to another state halfway across the country, this seems like a good time uh, to once again return to the book and just do a reading as a way of telling some stories in video game history and, and showing what kind of material the book has to offer if you're interested in that and you know providing a little annotating as I go along describing where various pieces of information came from we'll do our second reading from They Create Worlds in our next episode so we will be reading from They Create Worlds the first volume chapter what? we'll leave that as a surprise Chapter to be determined next time on They Create World, the podcast, the book, the legend. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please give us a review. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.